May God's word do what only God's word can do, and that is renew us and transform us and make us more like Christ Jesus. We are continuing our series in 1 Timothy. We'll be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 this morning. Now, there's so many things in God's word that uh, can be complicated, and this is one of those passages. You saw, I'll say that from the get-go. But my hope and my desire this morning is that we would see the nature and the purpose of this text. Whether you uh, believe in the sovereignty of God through His election and choosing, or if you believe that all men uh, have the choice, um, that's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is what is the heart and the mission of the church? If you'd like to know what I believe theologically about that, please see me after. And I'd love to talk to you and share with you my convictions and my beliefs about that. But that's not what this passage is about. And so my fear this week as I was studying this passage and preparing this passage, I kept thinking to myself, God, please give me the wisdom, the insight and the words to speak to the men and women's heart about the primary reason for the passage. You see, because if you believe uh, in Calvinism or you believe in Arminianism, that does not change the mission of the church. You see, the mission of the church is to pray for lost people. It, it will not change. If you believe that God chose people, well, we uh, must believe that we must pray for those He chose because uh, we don't know who He chose. And if He chose everybody, then we better pray for those that He will draw to Himself. So the mission of the church does not change. We are to pray for all people. You see, in God's Word, there's the great commandment, which is this. This is the great commandment for the church. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And then as Christ Jesus ascends back to the Father after His mission has been accomplished on the planet, He gives the great commission. Go and make disciples. And that's what we hold to here at Powell's Chapel. We want to know God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we want to make Him known. Another way we could title this message this morning is this. The Great Intercession. And I would ask us this morning, is this true for us individually? And is this true for us corporately? Do we make great prayer and great intercession for the unbeliever? Or is our heart broken for those who are lost from the Lord Jesus? If we want to have the heart of God, we must have God's heart for lost people. I mean, the cross shows us God's heart for lost people, does it not? That He would send His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. And so this morning, I want to talk to us about the church. You see, Timothy is a young pastor at a church in Ephesus that Paul started, and he's commissioning young Timothy. Here's how you are to lead the church. And we looked at that in chapter 1. Chapter 1 is all about protecting the Gospel. Fighting for the Gospel. The Gospel is simply the good news of who Jesus is. And the good news of who Jesus is says that there are sinners and we could not pay our own ransom and that Jesus had to come 
and do it for us. We'll see that again in this text. And what had happened in the church of Ephesus, it had happened here in America, is that the message of the gospel had been diluted. And it had been distorted and it had been becoming to get robbed from the leaders within the church. Not even the leaders outside of the church, but the leaders in the church. We looked at that last week. And so Paul says to Timothy, hey, fight the good fight in protecting the gospel. And now in chapter 2, all the way through the following, Paul is going to tell young Timothy, this is how you are to set up to protect the gospel. This is how you are to do the church. And where does he start with? Of all the places that the Apostle Paul could commission young Timothy to start, he starts here in this verse. He doesn't start with elders. He doesn't start with, hey, have some pastors, have elders. He doesn't start with, have deacons, have those that will serve. He doesn't start with women's roles in ministry, men's roles in ministry. Where does he start? Let's read in the text. It's Verses 1 and 2 is the charge of the church. First of all, circle that in your Bible. First of all, it's the, of utmost importance is what the Apostle is saying to young Timothy. The most important thing that you can do, young Timothy, as you begin to take over the church, is this one thing. It's of utmost importance, and it must be ours, Pals Chapel, of utmost importance. He says, then, I urge you, I plead with you, I beg you, I command you that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving may be made for all people. The all in this text is simply this. It's every tribe, tongue, and nation. Paul is not saying to young Timothy, pray for every single body by name. That would be impossible for you and I. If Paul came here to Powell's Chapel and said, hey, Powell's Chapel, I want you to pray for all the people of Walter Hill, we would have the understanding. He means simply all the people that make up Walter Hill. He's not saying, I want you to pray for this individual person, this individual person. We would never know every single person in Walter Hill. That would be overwhelming. But he's saying, I want you to pray for all of the people. Pray for all the people, all the Jews, all the Gentiles, all the different people groups here in Ephesus. So I would urge us first, Palace Chapel, are we praying for all people? What does that mean for us contextually? Are we praying for every neighborhood? Are we praying for every individual neighborhood that God has planted us in the middle of? Are you pleading on behalf of God for your neighbors, for your neighborhood? Paul says this way, I want you to pray. And I want you to do these four things as you pray. The first one is this, supplication. That's the word, a word for prayer. So what does the word supplication mean? That's what we do here on Wednesday night. We make supplication. When we come on Wednesday night for our meal, before I get into the study of God's Word, we make supplication. I say, does anyone have any prayer requests? And then we in detail share what the need is of the individual 
person. So do we do that for unbelievers? Do we make supplication for them? We're going to see what the primary place of our supplication must be in a few moments. Are we pleading on behalf of God for a specific need of the lost person? The second one is this. That we would what? Pray. Do we bring our prayers before a holy God? The word prayer is this. Bringing those things in view of God. So it's also a supplication and then it's a prayer. Are we presenting ourselves to God with our prayers before a holy God? The third one is this. Are we interceding or do we have intercessory prayer? That is pleading boldly on their behalf. When we intercede for someone, we are going before God with an intercession and we are pleading with God that God would do what only God can do. And then the last one is this. Do we take our thanksgivings? Are we thankful for the unbelievers in our lives? So Paul is saying to young Timothy, he's saying to the church in Ephesus, I want you to pray for all people. We're going to see who the all people are. It's lost people in this text. And I would say to us, and I would submit to us, Palace Chapel, are we praying for all people with supplication, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving for those that are lost around us? Then he says, it's an odd place for him to say it. In verse 2, he says, but or for, this is who I want you to pray for also. Pray for kings and those in high positions. You may wonder, what what is Paul saying there in the text? Well, it's another way that Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount. Pray for your enemies. You see, the people would understand when Paul said to Timothy, and Timothy said to them, pray for the kings. He's saying, pray for your enemies. The kings in that time, they hated Christians. The, 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 The emperor that was in in control or in rule at that time was uh, Nero. If you know anything about the emperor Nero, he was a wicked, wicked man. He, he made Hitler look like a cupcake. Here's what he did. He would throw these huge parties in his front yard and you know the way he would light up so that he could see what's going on? Like, we have street lights. They had what we would call Christian lights. He would take Christians, put them on a pole, and burn their bodies in a circular fashion so it would light the courtyard so that he could have a party. I'm telling you, he made Hitler look like a cupcake. And so the people would hear, pray for our emperor Nero? What? That's crazy. But he's pleading, pray. For those that you despise. And then he says, this is the reason we are to pray for those that we despise, those that we hate. Look at the word. The next word, he says, pray for the kings and all those who are high positions. Pray for your enemies. That what? It doesn't say that they may lead what lives. It says that who would lead godly lives? We. You see that? He's saying, don't pray for them that they would lead good, healthy lives. When you pray for them, you, the Christian, will lead 
four things. You will lead, lead a peaceful life, a quiet life, a godly life, and a dignified life. Because what was beginning to happen with the Christians in this day and age, they were becoming very resentful and very fearful. And there was a rebellion starting to, to come over the people, the Christians, to the emperor. And, and Paul is saying to Timothy, no, 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 no. We must pray for them. Because if we pray for our enemies, it's really, really, really difficult to hate our enemies if we pray for our enemies. And it's really difficult if we begin to thank God for them. And so he's saying, as you pray for your enemies and you pray for unbelievers, you will, the result will be you will live a peaceful life. I wonder for us here in America, here at Powell's Chapel, how often do we pray for those that are above us, our presidents, our senators, our vice presidents. Now we know, I know we talk about them a lot, but do we pray for them a lot? You see what the Apostle Paul was saying to Timothy, hey, if we pray for them, maybe the God and the will of God will change their heart and in changing their heart will let us live peaceful lives. You see, if the heart of Donald Trump is changed, then there's going to be a direct effect to those that he leads. But how often does the church talk about politics rather than pray for politics? So he's saying to the church, hey, plead, plead to God for those that are in position. And when you begin to pray, you will lead quiet lives. You will lead peaceful lives. You will lead godly lives. You will lead dignified lives. He's saying, then you will become my witness. There's a church out of Texas that drives me absolutely bananas. It's those people that go to every rally and they shout profanely at people. That is not what it means to live a quiet, dignified, godly life. What if they took all that energy and posting signs about homosexuality and abortions and they went into a closet and they begin to cry out to a holy God that God would change the hearts of people rather than a sign bashing a person. You see, those people give us bad names. So I would say, internally are we those people. We may never hold a sign, but internally, are our hearts holding a sign? Are our hearts bashing people? You see, we must plead to God on behalf of our rulers and behalf of those around us. You see, our greatest witness is not our words. Our greatest witness is how we live our lives. If the church began to live lives that Paul is urging young Timothy to live peaceful lives, quiet lives, godly lives, dignified lives. Do you not think the world around us would see a difference in us, the church, than it does within the world? So we must pray for those things as well. So that's the charge of the church. The charge of the church is that we would pray for all people which will move us into the understanding of what are we praying for? Or why are we praying? If He urges us, the church, pray and pray and pray 
through supplication and prayers and intercession and thanksgiving, then how come? What is the purpose? We must understand the purpose. It says this. This is good. What is good? Prayer is good. That's what he's talking about. This is good is the prayers. How come it's good, Paul? It is pleasing in the sight of who? God, our Savior. One of the few places in all of God's Word that it talks about God being the Savior. His, most of the time you're going to see Christ as Savior. But here in this passage it says God is the Savior. So we would begin to understand through our prayer life it's good to pray because there is a God that is here to save people. It's a good thing to pray. Because we believe that there's a God who saves. Do we not believe that this morning? And so it's a good thing that we pray because it's in the sight of God our Savior. Verse 4. How come it's a good thing in the sight of God our Savior? It says this. Who? Who is the who talking about? God the Savior desires that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, our proper understanding of who God is will change our prayer life. Who God is, God's heart, God's desire is that all people are saved. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. We see that throughout the Word of God. That one day, every tribe, tongue, and nation will be at the feet of God, worshiping God. And it will not be until that is accomplished that Christ the King returns. And so we understand the heart of God is for all people to worship Him one day. That is the very heart of God. And so we are praying that God, the heart of God, God's desire is that all men would worship Him. Now, the word desire is way different than the word will. It doesn't say God's will is that all men are saved. It says God's desire is that all men are saved. It's like this. I have a great desire today to go home, uh, get a, a, um, a, a large pizza, thin crust, roll it up, pretend like it's a stromboli, and eat the whole thing. That's my desire. But my will says that's a bad idea. And my stomach says that's even a worse idea. So my desire is one thing, and my will is a different thing. God's desire is that all men be saved. That doesn't change the will of God. You see, in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, it says this, the desire of God is that no one perish. I don't take great pleasure in people dying. That's not the desire of God. But we cannot confuse the desire of God with the will of God. I don't know who will be saved. Only God knows that. That's the will of God. Not the will of man. So let's not confuse the text when it comes to God's desire is that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of God. If that was God's desire, then He'd be making a huge mistakes because we know when we come to the passage that not all people come to know Christ. Right? I mean, that's obvious. We all know people that have not trusted in Jesus Christ and have passed away. My dad's one of those. Well, does that change the will of God? Does it change God's heart for my dad who's passed away and does not know him? No, his desire was that my dad would come to know him. For whatever reason, that will did not happen. That is a mystery to me, and it makes my brain like a PC computer. 
just blow up. It will fry the motherboard. There's just some things in God's Word I cannot explain, and this is one of them. The will of God and the desire of God. I just know it's true through the Word of God. And I can't figure it out, and maybe one day, that side of eternity, I might figure it out, but I guarantee this, when I'm in heaven, I won't care what the desire of God is or the will of God is, because I'll be worshiping a holy God. So he says this. This is the reason that we pray for people, because it's God's desire that they would come to know Him. Now, I don't know who will know, come to know Him. I just know it's God's desire. Therefore, I must plead with God that God would save people. And now He says, this is how He saves people. This is how His desire and His will get accomplished. Do we believe this, church? Verse 5. For there is one God there is only one God, church. We must believe that as we pray. There is one God that we're praying to. The Hindus have it totally wrong. The Muslims have it totally wrong. And on and on and on I can go. The Apostle Paul through Timothy is saying this. There is one God and one God alone. And He is the God that saves. He is the only one that can save. And this is how He saves. There is only one God who saves. Do we believe that to be true? And now he says this. Now there's not a lot of ways to that one God. Not all roads lead to one God. Do we believe that? There is one way that God's desire and God's will is accomplished. It's through what he just says next. It is that there is one mediator. Not many mediators. What he's talking about is a very um, judicial system here. He's saying that there has to be a mediator between a holy God and sinful man. That in this courtroom, I've said it time and time again, that we stand before a holy God with sin draped all over us. We are guilty as guilty can be. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Why we were yet sinners. There's none that are righteous. No, not one. Our best deeds, he says, are but filthy rags. We stand before a holy God condemned, waiting for the wrath of God. But he says, I need, we need. It's what Job says in his text. I wish there was a mediator standing between me and you, God. What Job did not realize is he was talking prophetically that there would be a Messiah that would come to be our mediator. The word mediator means this. It refers to one who intervenes between two individuals to restore a covenant. There's a covenant that God made to us in the Old Testament. And the covenant was, you will be always be my people. He made that to Adam and Eve in the garden. And what sin did was break the covenant in half. And all the Old Testament was about God's people trying to bridge the gap through a sacrificial system. That was their mediator. Was the lamb that they slaughtered on an altar to bring mediation between them and a holy God. And then Jesus showed up and said, I am the ultimate mediator. I am what? The lamb of who? 
God, not the Lamb of the people, but I'm the Lamb of God. God sent me to you to be the great sacrifice on your behalf so that I could mediate between a holy God and between sinful man. The mediator, what he's doing is taking God's righteous heart and our wicked heart and smashing them together so that God's heart through Christ's blood would redeem all of us. He's saying there's one God and there's only one mediator, Christ Jesus. And then he says this. Who what? Who, what did Jesus do? Church, this is so important. Who what gave Himself as a ransom for all? Jesus Christ freely gave His life. A ransom for all. The word ransom is this. It's a rich biblical term referring to the, the release of a captive by a payment price. That Christ and His death and atonement and mediation was the great sacrifice that paid the price I could not pay to set me free. We are free because of the ransom price of Christ Jesus through His mediation. That, and that is what He's saying. I desire all men to be saved through Christ and Christ alone in church. You are to plead on the unbeliever's behalf for that. That is our prayer. That must be our prayer, church, is that unbelievers would have this recognition. There is one God and one God alone. There is one mediator. And the one mediator paid the, the one ultimate price and his ransom of giving his life. And the apostle Paul through Timothy to the church in Ephesus saying, plead with God that unbelievers would know and understand that. And I would beg you first, do you, church, know and understand that there is one God? There is one mediator that played, paid the one price of his life for a ransom for all that would trust and obey him. Where does that leave us, church? It leaves us with the great call. Not only are we to pray, then the Apostle Paul says this two things, verses. 7 and 8. I know your outlines say verse 7 alone, but I will include verse 8. It was for this, for what? He was appointed to preach. For there is this, the preaching of the Gospel. So the Apostle Paul is saying to us, to Timothy, yes, we must pray. We must pray. We must pray. But not only are we must to pray, the call on our lives as the churches, we must preach. That is not my role alone. It may be my role primarily, but it's not my role alone. What the Apostle Paul through young Timothy to the church of Ephesus is saying, hey, I was appointed and now I'm appointing you, the church, to go and preach the gospel to lost people. You see, I will only preach the gospel to lost people when I am pleading and pleading and pleading on God's behalf. See, if, if my heart begins to break for lost people, I can't do anything else but preach the gospel to people. So he's not saying, hey, start with preaching the gospel. He start with preach to yourself the gospel through prayer and preaching the gospel to ourselves. It will compel us to go and preach it 
to a lost and dying world. And so I beg us, church, are we preaching the gospel to ourselves every day as we plead for lost people to come to know Christ? God answers prayer. And He answers the prayer of the righteous man and the righteous woman. So the first thing He tells us to do is this, is that we would preach the truth. But then He says this, verse 8, I desire then that every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger and quarrel. What is He saying? When we pray for lost people, to come to know Jesus, when we preach to lost people to come to know Jesus, when we begin to see lost people through our prayers and our preaching come to know Jesus, it will lead us to one thing. It will always lead us to doxology. It will always lead us to worship. Our preaching and our praying will lead us to a worshipful life. Church, are we worshiping God through our praying and our preaching the good news to lost people? I will say it again and again and again. If we are a praying people and we are a preaching people, we need to have seatbelts in every pew because we ought to sit down and strap it on because this place ought to go crazy and worship because we see a God doing what only God can do. Do you know the greatest miracle that humans can ever see? That humans can ever see is a lost person coming to know Jesus Christ as the Savior. That is the greatest miracle that happens day in and day out. And I plead with us, church, when is the last time this church has seen lost people come to Jesus and we explode in worship for that? You see, that's why at the beginning of the year, I simply said this. My desire is that God would grant us 10 families this year, 10 new families that we would be praying for and that we are already praying for. And my prayer is you've taken that card, that, that one little index card, and you've stuck it somewhere where you see it every day. It's in my Bible. I pray every day, multiple times a day, God give us ten people to intercede for, to pray for, to plead for, to beg for. And that God, out of those ten families, that we'd see five families come and place their membership here at this church to be a part of what God's called us to. And then, God, we'd pray for five people. Five people would come to know Jesus. That we, this year, would see five miracles come to know Jesus. You know, the truth is, already, in the the few weeks we've been praying, we've seen two miracles. Do you not realize, last week, when young Logan got into the baptistry, that was a sign of a miracle? That his heart was regenerated by the gospel truth of Jesus Christ? That's way more than a baptism. That is a miracle that we, the church, got to be in witness. We ought to explode with worship in a few weeks. Man, you you better get me a seatbelt because I'll have the privilege of baptizing my daughter because she trusted in Christ. That's because of your work in her Sunday school room. That's because of your work in loving on her. That is the miracle of the church. We are almost halfway done and we're only six weeks into the year. Do you see that's a miracle already? Maybe maybe my prayer was too low. I mean, like two out of six weeks, that's God doing it. Amen. And we ought to 
worship a holy God. And so I say, church, will we be a church that prays for all men to come to know Christ and we would plead that Christ would draw all men to Himself. I don't want to grow a church. I want to grow a people that will worship a holy God and serve Him with all their heart and in a lost world will take notice of what God is doing here in our midst. We have the great privilege this morning to take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a reminder to us of this very verse here that's found in 1 Timothy. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all. You see, as we come and we take the bread and the juice, it's a reminder of the greatest ransom that's ever been paid for you and for me, the believer. If you do know, know Christ, this table is not for you. I don't say that in judgment. I don't say that with condemnation. I say that because I care and love you tremendously. The Apostle Paul says this, if you come to the table and you do not know Christ Jesus, you are asking to get sick. And so I'm pleading with you, if you do not know, if you have not trusted Christ, do not take this table this morning. But I would implore you with all that I can that don't allow another day to go that you have not trusted in Jesus Christ the greatest ransom to ever be paid. And we, myself, Brother Frank, the deacons, we want to share the gospel message with you. So as the rest of us are taking the Lord's Supper and the Lord is calling you and drawing you to Himself, don't leave here. Don't allow shame or fear to keep you from coming up front and finding me, finding one of the deacons to pray. Like, I want to be a guy that God has redeemed and set free. I'm who you've been praying for. Don't leave here this morning without knowing and trusting in Jesus Christ. This is the Gospel. Simply put. That there is a holy God and His divine wisdom. He saw the need for us, the sinner, to be redeemed to Him. In His divine wisdom, He sent His only begotten Son to pay the ransom price for us. You see, our sin is what separates us from God. And all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what Romans says to us. And so there's this gap between you and between God. And that's where the mediator comes in to bridge the gap. But we must place our hope and faith and trust in that bridge. You cannot just sit and look at the bridge and say, yep, the bridge will take me to the other side. You must take leaps of faith on that bridge to come and trust in Christ. And it's through Christ and Christ alone, the mediator, that gets us to the feet of a holy God. That's the gospel message. And in that, we have eternal security. There's no turning back. You cannot lose that security of your salvation once you place your hope and your life and your faith in the hands of a holy God. He says to us in the Gospels, no one can pluck you out of my Father's hands. Nor can, in another way, nor can you pluck yourselves out of the Father's hands. There is eternal security for all of us. That is the Gospel. 
If you do not know that, please find me. Find the deacon. We want to share that gospel message with you. And church, I would implore you, if you know Christ, I would implore you, the way the Apostle Paul urges young Timothy, let us be a church that prays for lost people. For lost people. That God would draw them to Himself. Let us be a praying church. Let us pray. As I pray, if the deacons would come forward to prepare the Lord's Supper.